If you have your Bibles with you today, I can invite you to turn with me to Exodus 24. However, I would actually suggest this morning that you follow along with me in your bulletins as I'll be making reference to both of the passages, the one that has been read and the one that I'm about to read for, so it may be more uh, convenient for you. Uh, as you can see, I'm taking a one-week break for us from First Peter and preaching in light of the fact that these folks have just joined the church, that these children have just professed their faith publicly uh, for the first time, and then in light of the upcoming Lord's Supper. And what I want us to consider today are the wonders and the workings of the covenant of grace. The wonders and the workings of the covenant of grace. And to do that, I've chosen these two key texts that we find uh, in the history of God's people, Israel. The Passover, which Joel read for us just a few moments ago, and then the response of the people uh, at uh, Sinai, which I'm going to read for us here in just a moment. So before I read it, just real quickly, the story, God has now taken the people, the Passover has taken place, God has taken the people out of captivity in Egypt, they have come through the Red Sea, they have arrived at Mount Sinai, the Mount of God, uh, and God has instructed them to consecrate themselves to prepare for this time of worship. And in so doing, he then calls Moses up the mountain and gives to Moses the law, or uh, the law and the promises. It includes the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. We're not going to read those uh, right here this morning, but it includes those. And you'll see it referred to in what I'm going to be reading for us here as the Book of the Covenant. This is what God has given to his people, and now we pick up the story here in verse 1 of 24. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient." And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clean, clearness. And he did, not, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The covenant of grace works. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for these passages. And we thank you for how they've been fulfilled in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us today. 
Help us today to be refreshed and renewed again as we see these things and contemplate them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When God created Adam and Eve, he entered into covenant with them and through them with us as well. The covenant that God made was a way for him to bridge the distance between us as creature and God as creator. In covenant, God reaches down to us in love so that we serve him not only because we should serve him, not only because he is the one who has created us and the one who has authority over us as the sovereign Lord of all of the universe, but we serve him as the fullest expression of our joy. God's covenant is a way in which he unites us to himself. It is a bond between us and God. If, if marriage is the bond between a man and a woman, then the bond between God and his people is the covenant that he has made. The covenant is good. But, but we, through our first parents, in our first parents, rebelled against God. And I'm going to quote for us. We became incapable of life by that covenant. The Lord was then pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace. Now, I'm quoting there from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And, and the basic point is this. Without what I've just said, without the covenant of grace, we would have perished. We would have suffered under the judgment of God. We would have perished physically and spiritually in every way, and that would have been forever. But in God, establishing with us, his people, the covenant of grace... Life is once again held out. Life is once again offered to a people who have been rebellious. We do not deserve the covenant of grace. We did not earn the covenant of grace. We do not have a right to the covenant of grace. God has made it. God has established it. And throughout the scriptures, this covenant of grace is unfolded for us. It's unpacked for us from the very beginning of scripture to the end of scripture. And all of the blessings, all of the joys that we have in our lives now and that we will have for all eternity come to us through the covenant of grace. They come to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as he relates to us by this covenant of grace. It is a good covenant. It is an effectual covenant. It is a covenant that does what it is supposed to do. The covenant of grace works. Now, today, in the readings that I've got for us, we've picked up the story of the covenant of grace in the book of Exodus, in God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt. Now, you know, relatively speaking, you may not have your Bibles open, but I've got mine open, and you can see that that's fairly early in the story, 
right? So we're, we're still pretty early in the story of how God is unfolding this covenant of grace, but it doesn't start even here in Exodus. It begins with Adam and Eve, where God graciously allows them continued life and promises his blessings unto them, and then we see that covenant unfolded a little bit more, growing a little bit more under Noah, where we see God delivering people out of judgment and saving Noah and his family and preserving the earth as well. We see that covenant unpacked a little bit more for us in the person of Abraham and all of the promises and the blessings that are given to us in Abraham. And now we come to it here in Exodus, and we're looking again at this covenant of grace as it continues to grow throughout Scripture, and we focus our attention then on uh, the Passover and on Sinai as we look at it today. Uh, There are, I think literally I can say this, countless benefits to the covenant of grace, to what we receive as God's people in the covenant of grace. But using uh, these passages that are before us today, what I'd like to do today is highlight three uh, amongst the many that are there, because I think they jump off the page uh, for us in the, uh, in the two texts that we've got. So, so three things today, and here's, here's the first. The covenant of grace works to procure and secure our salvation. The covenant of grace works to procure and secure our salvation. So the Passover, what Joel read for us, is of course a story of salvation. God took his people, God took the Israelites who were in bondage, who were enslaved, who were in captivity, who were groaning under that captivity, under that enslavement in Egypt, and he delivered his people out of Egypt. The Passover is then a story of salvation. It is a story of deliverance. But what I would like us to see is that it's not only a story of God delivering his people from the Egyptians. It is that, but it is more than that as well. Because what takes place here is that God, in that tenth plague, we didn't read that tenth plague, remember the tenth plague, the tenth plague is going to be that God is going to bring a judgment into the land of Egypt for all of the wickedness and all of the sin of the people in the land of Egypt. And as a result, the firstborn in all the households is going to die. There will never be a scream that goes up, a cry that goes up, like the cry that's going to go up from that tenth plague. But as it turns out, Israel is also in Egypt. It's not just Egyptians who are there. Israel is also in Egypt, and yet God is going to spare Israel. Why? Why? How does Israel avoid this plague? Now, God God isn't confused, right? God could easily just skip over the people of Israel and their tents, their houses, not uh, do them. But God says, I'm going to not show show my judgment, my wrath against my people to show a distinction, a distinction between those who are the recipients of his grace and those who are the recipients of his judgment there in Egypt. So there's a distinction made between the Egyptians and the Israelites. But in particular, if we ask then, how is it that God is going to spare the Israelites? The answer is very concrete, right? As the angel comes in, as the Lord comes in to work this destruction, 
the Israelites will be spared when the angel comes, when the Lord comes, and the blood is around the frame, the lintel of that door. The Israelites are going to be spared from destruction by the blood of the covenant. They, too, were guilty of wickedness. They, too, were guilty of sin, of rebellion against the Lord. But the thing that saves them is the blood of the covenant that is spread over their door, the blood of the covenant of grace. They are not saved. They are not saved. And the rest of Scripture will make this clear, in particular Deuteronomy. They are not saved because they deserved it. They are not saved because they earned it. They are not saved because it was their right. They are not saved because they were such a great people or because they were such a numerous people. They're not saved for any of those reasons. They're saved by the blood that is over their door because of the grace then of God. Now, this same idea of salvation through this blood is repeated in Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, when that sacrifice is made and Moses throws the blood on the people, he, he throws it on the altar and then he throws it across all of the people who are assembled there. And he says to them, behold, the blood of the covenant and it's blood that's thrown over all of them. The entire sacrificial system communicates the same thing. You have rebelled against me. You deserve death. You deserve your blood to be shed. And I am giving you life by a blood substitute. I am counting another life in place of yours. But everyone, everyone, in the Old Testament should have understood, as the New Testament makes plainly clear, that this was a representational system, that, that this blood, the blood of the, of the bulls and the goats, the blood of every other animal that was shed, that it can't actually take away those sins. It can't actually save the people. Those things can represent it. They can communicate it. They can convey the mercy of God, and explain it to the people, but it is in fact only the blood of the Lamb of God, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that makes the covenant of grace work. That's the blood. There's a lot of blood. It's, it's a bloody mess in Exodus chapter 24, but it's only the blood of the Lamb of, Jesus, of God, Jesus Christ, that will actually save and deliver the people. And so when Jesus gathers his disciples together for that last meal, that last supper, and says, this is the new covenant in my blood, this is what he's looking at. This is what he's reflecting on. He's reflecting on the Passover. He's reflecting on this covenant meal right here. And he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant by his blood. He has procured and secured our salvation. And then he assembles us up as his people in this church. We are, those who have faith in Christ, a blood-bought people. A blood-bought people. Nothing less is necessary to procure and to secure your salvation. Heidelberg Catechism, and I'll refer to it in each one of these points. The Heidelberg Catechism says it this way, we've been saved, we've been forgiven our sins by his precious blood. He paid for all of them. In the covenant of grace, 
Those who believe in him are safe and secure. So that's point number one. The covenant of grace works to procure and secure our salvation. Point number two. The covenant of grace works to evoke and invite us into participation. Our salvation through the covenant of grace is 100% the work of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Last Sunday evening, uh, we, we sang the hymn that has the line in it, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my tears forever, could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no respite? No, all for sin could not atone. Thou must saved and thou alone. How many times do we find it in scripture? How many times do you hear me pray it from the front? Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of Christ. The salvation of the covenant of grace is 100% the work of the Lord. But then, the covenant of grace works to bring us into participation. We're, we're, not, we're not just on the sidelines. We're brought into what God is doing. The celebration of the Passover is a participatory celebration that goes on. Everybody's busy. Everybody's busy getting things together for this meal. And then in the midst of it, you get this question that I think is, it's up there. It's not only, but it's up there with my favorite questions that are in, that's in all the scriptures. When in verse 26, chapter 12, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? The kids are watching everything that's going on. Right? And these kids who were, were instructing about kids who will be in the promised land, these kids didn't experience this, so they're kind of looking at what are all these preparations. And then the parents explain it to them. So, so Daniel and Zoe and Evelyn and Christopher, we've spent the last six months, your parents and I and other teachers in the church, trying to explain to you about this service. The service that is the worship service, the service that is the life of the church, and in particular, the service that is the Lord's Supper. Trying to say to you, this is what that is. This is what this means. This is what God has done for us. And so today, as you take another step in your walk with Jesus, you're not just watching what's happening, you are participating in it. You are going for the first time today to partake of the Lord's Supper. And and I want you to hear this language of participation, not only the way it's framed there in the Old Testament, but listen to the way Paul describes it. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? When you partake of this meal today, you are partaking of participating in Jesus Christ. And then it goes on. The next step is, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. As we all partake of Christ, we become partaking participants of one another as well. So there's a connection then that is strengthened as we partake of this, not only you with the Lord, but in the Lord with your brothers and sisters who are here as well. To eat this meal provided by the covenant of grace is to join in and to participate. And both 
both the Passover and Sinai required, they invited extensive participation because participation is part of belonging. It's part of belonging to something. And again, let me go back to the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I'm not my own, but belong. I belong body and soul in life and in death. That's the idea of the covenant meal. In the covenant meal, this is a meal of participation. It's a meal of belonging. We belong to Jesus. We belong to his church. So let me extend then something to both new and old members of like, alike. The covenant of grace works to call you, to summon you, to participation in the life of the church, in its work, and in its worship. Now, I said this when I was talking to the folks who were joining just a few minutes ago. That isn't always going to be easy. It wasn't easy for Israel. It was easy probably at this point right here when everybody says, this is great, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do it. That's great. It seems like that should be the end. Put the period there, describe the temple, and everything's fine. But of course, that's actually not the end of this story. It gets very messy very quickly. When Moses goes back up to receive the further instructions of the Lord, the people the people make the golden calf and they descend into all kinds of rebellion against the very laws that have just been given to them. Being a participant in the life of the church, the more you participate, the more you will realize it can be messy. It can be hard to participate in the life of the church. People here will offend you, guaranteed. There's no doubt about it, we will offend you. We will let you down at times in the life of the church. But it is called for. The participation is called for. And it's honored by the king and the head of the church. It is blessed by him. It is blessed by the host of this covenant meal who says yes in the midst of all of the mess and all of the bickering and all of the feuding and all of the competition that can go on within the people of God. Come to this table and feast upon me. Participate. Partake of me and partake of one another as well. Okay, so two points then. The covenant of grace works to procure and secure our salvation. Secondly, the covenant of grace works to evoke and invite our participation. And finally, the covenant of grace works to quicken and to renew our dedication to the Lord. So there you go. Salvation, participation, and dedication. Now, hard work and dedication cannot get you into the covenant of grace. We will never work hard enough. Uh, we will never be dedicated enough to become partakers of the covenant of grace. But when we receive Jesus by faith and the covenant of grace, we are, in fact, quickened. We are, in fact, vivified. The covenant of grace works to move us, to compel us, to invigorate us. It works to empower us to serve the Lord, to love the Lord, and to love our neighbor as well. You can see it in the text that we've got before us today. What happens at the end of that section in 12 that we read? When we read about this, when we read about this service, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped, and then verse 28, the people of Israel went and did so. 
As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. That's the compelling work of the covenant of grace. When you experience that grace, when you begin to participate in it, in that salvation, then you say, how can I be dedicated to the Lord? How can I do this? The end of 13, the same thing. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. That's the expectation, that you will do this. And then when we come to chapter 24, to uh, this meal that is set before the people in uh, the Book of the Covenant and all of the surrounding uh, themes that are working through this chapter, we see this twice-repeated vow that the people make, this pledge of loyalty. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's what it says in verse 3. And then verse 7 kind of takes it even farther than that. And all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. They just heard the Ten Commandments. They had just heard other laws that were said as well. They have been read in this book of the covenant, and they make this vow. Now, as we know, as we know, this vow was more than they were going to be able to fulfill. They weren't going to be able to fulfill this very vow that they have made here. But this vow that they make expresses expresses the heart that has been graciously quickened and renewed by God because it's the vow that expresses this idea, that's what I want. I may not be able to do it, but that's what I want. In my heart of hearts, because of the work of Jesus Christ, because of the salvation of of the covenant of grace, because of the participation, I want to do and obey all of the word of the Lord. The covenant of grace produces in us that wanting and that willing. And that, too, is captured in the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism where it comes at the end and it says, it makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's dedication. That's the work of the covenant of grace. It moves you to renewal. It moves you to, if you will, dedication and rededication of your life unto the Lord. Now, we seek to capture this very movement that is here, this movement from salvation to participation to dedication in the vows, in the vows that you guys just took. These things are captured there. When when the third question was, do you now resolve and promise and humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ. And the fourth one, do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? That's capturing the dedication. That's capturing the desire that we have to serve the Lord. Now, there are countless, countless examples of this same movement in 
uh, scripture as a whole. I've got three of them in your bulletin. I'm not going to actually, for the sake of time, refer to all of them right now. All of these Hebrews passages that are scattered, the promise of assurance, the one that's on the front of your bulletin, and the benediction. If you read them, you will see that they speak of the salvation of the blood of the covenant, the participation that we have as the people of God, in God, in Christ himself, and then the call is, okay, stir up one another to love and good works. That's the movement that you'll see, that you hear every time I close with the benediction that closes the book of Hebrews as well. The God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by what? By the blood of the eternal covenant, by the blood of the covenant of grace, equip you with everything good so that you can do his will. Right? This, this grace has come in, this blood has saved you, you've become a participant in this new community of faith, and may he equip you with everything good that you may follow after him, that you may do the will of the Lord. Now, some of the children, when we were interviewing them and talking with them, expressed this concern. They didn't know if they would be able in the years to come to keep the vows that they were taking this day. If you want to enter into their word a little bit, you're 12 or 13 or so when you're taking these vows, you've got a question. You can see it. You've seen it in brothers and sisters. You've seen it in people around you. You can see that things get a little dicey at 15, at 17, at 19 in your life. Will you be able to keep these vows? And these kids asked a great question about that. They were counting the cost. And we can say along them with Scripture, if you're asking, will you be able to keep them perfectly? Answer is no. No, you won't. You will not be able to keep them perfectly. And yet, they are expressing a true desire of your heart. The true desire of your heart. And that's because the covenant of grace is at work in your lives, producing that kind of willing, that kind of desire, that kind of dedication. And it is the very covenant of grace that when you don't keep those vows will hold you in place, will secure you in place. And that's why this group of people gathers together every Sunday. We confess our sins to say, I didn't keep all of the words of the Lord this week again. And we find the blood of Christ to be sufficient to secure our salvation. You will not be able to hold him tight by these vows. But the Lord has sworn. The Lord has sworn, and his word is secure. And his blood is effective to hold you in his grasp. To sum it up then today, we are here in salvation, in participation, and in dedication because the covenant of grace works. He who called you into that covenant of grace is faithful, and he will surely do it. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Lord, you know our own straying. You know the people that are in our minds and our hearts right now, who we wonder about. Pray that you would be gracious that you would remember the promises that you have made for our children and for our children's children. 
We pray that you would help all of us to be renewed by your grace in our zeal for you, in our desire to serve you, the living God. Thank you for the blood of the covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.